Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor Francisco Brown. Francisco is Assistant Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School. His research focuses on two key aspects of organizations. First, their nature, the essential forces that explain the origins and functioning of organizations. And second, the interchange in organizations between the formal structures and the informal forces within them, such as culture and the way people work together. And of course, looking at how all of this impacts on performance. Francisco, you are very welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I mentioned in the introduction that your research focuses on various aspects of organizations, but perhaps you might start by telling us what is an organization? Sure, sure. So an organization is one of those terms which are very broad and sometimes hard to, to define. And let's have a go at it. So uh, organization is, is defined in general. There is an agreement that is defined as a group of people that share a common goal. Right? This, is, this is a very general definition. So we need to start unpacking a little bit what this means. So by group, I guess that one has to think about uh, a, a certain group of people that are together. And, and usually what, what you want to think about in, in defining organizations is that there has to be some kind of boundary so that the members of the organization know who is in and who is out. That's typically some conditions so that you can have an organization. Uh, also, the, the idea of goals is important. Because if you don't have a goal that people share, you end up just with an agglomeration of people, not an organization. Uh, and there are many, many examples of organizations that fill, fill, fill discrete criteria. Everywhere you look in our social reality, in our society, we, we find organizations, schools, hospitals, uh, I don't know, even, even religions or churches. You have people coming together with a goal in this case, which is not instrumental, but it's something that they want to do together to reach some kind of, I don't know, worshiping God or, so, or something like that. Um, also, in the literature, there are some additional distinctions that one would like to think when thinking about organizations. One is that there is, in sociology, have cataloged organizations for a while now. Spent, there's a big part of sociology that tries to understand organizations and they've made up this very elaborate classification of organization. But one of the two main uh, the dimensions that one would like to think about is to, to, to what degree organizations are voluntary versus involuntary. And you have both in the real world. So you have, for example, uh, churches, whether you belong or not to, a, to, to an organization called a church, usually it's voluntary. You can come in and go out as you please. Whereas other, other organizations think of, I don't know, firms, uh, companies, corporations, it, it, access and the entry to those organizations is restricted. It's not like you can knock on the door and say, look, I want to be part of this organization. So that, that's, that's an important distinction, the voluntary versus non-voluntary aspect. And in, in the paper that we're going to talk about later, that, that's an important distinction on how we would like to 
contribute uh, in how in, so we, we contribute in, 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 in building a theory and proposing how a certain type of organization those which have uh, restricted access which are not voluntary have been help helping the 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 human species in the long run in, in our in our evolution so to speak another distinction which important is the one between formal and informal organizations you have informal organizations where people come together they share a goal uh, nowadays with the rise of of internet you have all sorts of informal organizations rising up they come together they have a goal uh, think about i don't know this last episode in the u.s of these uh, small sized investors that came together to try to do a big short against established companies and, and try to, to make a run. And those are informal organizations that come up. Uh, but also you have formal organizations which are more structured and you have formal authority, people that can set up the rules of who is interacting with whom and they can enforce those rules and, and, and such. So I would say that's overall kind of the basics of organizations. Okay. So if we, if we think about people and, and societies, I can imagine and that organizations have in many ways always been around in some shape or form. You mentioned their religious bodies and I'm guessing you think of empires and uh, other institutions that go with them over history. But what role have organizations actually played in supporting human development? Have they helped it or, or perhaps hindered it? Yeah, so my view is that organizations have been, just like you said, around for ages. I guess that they've been with us forever. So you have this account, for example, in, in, in which have been done for, for looking at today's forager societies, that even those societies, they do have organizations in place uh, of different sort, you know? So one can presume that these have been around for tens of thousands of years in our, in our, in our species. So they're very old. That's something to, to consider. So that's already telling us that this is something very powerful, that it has been around with us for a long time. I think that one can make the case that they are, they are adaptive, they are helpful, they, they, they serve a purpose for, for our species. And then one, one, one would like to think about more in detail, what is that purpose? Well, then I guess that one need to distinguish between organizations, because there are some organizations which are high level, let's say, think about the state, the judiciary, or some public services like, I don't know, hospitals or education, then, then I think the, the case can be easily made. Well, what is the role uh, for providing political governance, providing knowledge dissemination in case of schools and educational system, things like that. What I'm interested more as a scholar in a business school is what is the role of companies of, I don't know, firms that you see out there everywhere from small startups to the big corporate uh, behemoths that we see in the in in in, in the stock markets, uh, and and I've been done I've been done I've I've been doing work on that question. What is it, the role? What is the function that they have for societies? And I I will classify the functions that 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 the literature and myself have contributed to to lay out for these type of organizations. Uh, is there are two. One is, is basically given a set of uh, possible transactions, and by that I mean 
we have a set of things that we can do coming together as people and, and, and workers and provide goods and services for society. Those, that's what companies do. And there is a kind of a feasible set, if you will, given the technology and knowledge that we have all the way to today, let's say, that companies can do, you know? So we have, I don't know, all sorts of companies doing things. And the role there is to give in a set of an inherited pool of knowledge and technology that we have available today. How can you minimize the cost to provide those services and, 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 and goods to society? Right, everything from cars to food to to uh, all the services, financial services, etc., etc., etc. The list, the list is, is very long. Uh, and by minimizing cost, I think that the literature. This is mostly coming from economics, uh, which is a discipline that I draw quite a lot from. Is that you would like to think that they're they're trying to minimize the cost of organization, not necessarily the production cost. Because that's something that's inherent in technology. How well we do cars has improved over time, and that's part of the technology. And we can think of organizations which have a certain capacity to produce cars at a certain cost, given the technology. Firmly, what they do is something different. They minimize the organizational cost. Because if you think about it, organizations are a set of people that come together to produce something that they couldn't produce otherwise uh, separately. Uh, and when they transact with one another and they want to create this, this unique thing that they want to produce, there are some problems that you might run into. I don't know, there might be some disorganization problems or maybe cooperation is hard to achieve. Uh, and all of these problems or frictions, if you will, you want to think about in physical terms, there are some frictions that happen there in the, in the transaction between individuals. Uh, all of those are labeled like transaction costs. Like whenever you come together and try to do something, those transaction costs are, are, are present and you want to minimize them. And then you want to think about what is the organization arrangement that can minimize those, those organizational costs. For example, if I give you an example, think about a, a large mine that is, I don't know, extracting uh, gold somewhere in a very remote place, but they need a lot of power. So they, they have to set up a power plant next to, next to the mine. You could contract with an external party, let's say a third party supplier uh, that wants to invest in this, in this power plant and then have a contract with a price with the mining company in order to supply the electricity. But that scenario is riddled with problems, you know, because they're, they're collocated. The mine, once the contract has been, has been executed, he can say, well, I think the price is too, is too high. I want to pay less. And there, is, there are many problems that can arise in relationships. And when that happens, usually in this example, for example, you could think that they're going to vertically integrate and going to become one single firm. So in this case, the mine probably will own the, the, the facility producing electricity, and, and that will be the organizational arrangement that you will reach. But this can vary because there are so many transactions and frictions that can happen that managers and owners, they play around with their organization, both in terms of the scope, but also in terms of the organizational structure to try to minimize this organizational cost or transaction cost, if you will. So that's, that's one, one, big, one big solution that, that they provide to society. And, and, and does that suggest then that organizations 
essentially exist to to solve problems and and as you suggested it's to solve that problem of, of things that i can't do on my own but actually when i'm working together with others the organization can can do it yes precisely that's that's precisely what i was trying to convey and you you summarize it very well in just a few a few a few seconds you try to make people work together the best that they can, right? And for that, you try to manipulate different organizational levers, who has authority, who, who I don't know, how, whether you vertically integrate or not, how you set up incentives, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's kind of the role of organizations to a large degree, uh, what they accomplish. Okay, interesting. You mentioned already um, the, the the article that that you and a colleague recently wrote, and and I guess to to talk about that in a bit more detail, in that recent article you discussed the the evolution of organisations, and you drew upon what could be called cultural evolution theory to explain their growth. In in practical terms, and what does this particular approach tell us about how organizations have evolved over time? Yeah, perfect, perfect. That's that's the second part of the role of organizations, uh, which I was uh, answering the, in your previous question. So the first is organizing better so that you can accomplish your goals. The, the other one is that given, so you want to expand the technology and the knowledge that we have in society. So the pool of knowledge and technologies that we have developed over eons or over millennia or, or the last 100 years are the essence of what makes our species successful, right? Uh, in, in, in the theory that I'm going to explain later, that's called cultural accumulation. You accumulate culture, you accumulate stuff, knowledge, information, technologies, etc. that can help us solve problems in the world. And in this paper that we published recently with my co-author, that's what we that's we think that's this is the reason why these organizations have been around for so long and that's kind of their main function for society is to improve the capacity of groups societies to accelerate that process of cultural accumulation uh, and that's what we lay out in that article we have a formal theoretical model as usually in this type of articles using evolutionary arguments and we have an empirical test and and we try to make a case for, for that. And, and if you think about it, that's kind of something novel because in usually the, the usual explanation for the role of, of organizations and firms in particular in society is this, this role of reducing organizational transaction cost, right? Given a set of knowledge, uh, a pool of knowledge that has been inherited. What we say is yes, that's part of the story, but there is an even a more important one, which is expanding this set of knowledge and technology that we have in the society. And, and that has been an important force that has been selected, that's been selecting for organizations in the long run. When we're talking about that knowledge piece, then, uh, in the same article, you argue that social learning under certain conditions allows for the diffusion of innovations in society and therefore the, the accumulation of, of, of culture. D does this suggest that organizations are not just about accumulating knowledge, but also about that social element of learning that happens when people are together? Yeah, perfect. Yes, now, now we're getting into the details of how this idea works. Uh, so for, for that, I have to explain a little bit what is cultural evolution first. So cultural evolution theory 
uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting theory. So I recommend people to, to read, to, to, to get to know this theory, because it's, at least for me, has been a very eye-opening experience. I've learned so much about our species, what drives the success of our species, etc. This, this, this is something that was developed in anthropology and in, in the intersection between anthropology and evolutionary and, and biology. And a set of scholars, they adapted the toolkit from evolutionary biology to understand how culture evolves in society, right? And you can think of culture as an evolutionary system that has uh, inheritance, has variation, has selection over time. And, and these, these scholars, they created this, this very elaborate theory, mathematical theory that is very robust, that does a very good job at explaining the success of our species. And, the, and in, in a nutshell, what the main idea of this theory is, is that when you have social learning, and by social learning, I mean the capacity of humans uh, to learn from one another, uh, imitation, teaching, uh, any other form of social transmission of information, which by the way, in our lineage is, is much stronger than any other uh, species that biologists and you know, the scholars have tried to document this presence of social learning. Social learning in human is very strong. Uh, when you have the presence of social learning, what happens is that innovations over time can accumulate in a population. So I give an example. Imagine that we are in a, I don't know, in the savanna 100,000 years ago, and we're a tribe, and we have to solve problems, really. And imagine that someone innovates and say, look, and, and discover a better way of doing a spear, you know, to hunt. Well, someone else sees that, and if you are good at copying, everyone starts to adopt things slowly, this innovation that this person, this, this member of the tribe created, this, this better spear. And then you could go about, I don't know, a few generations with that spear, maybe three or four, but then someone else innovates on top of that, say, well, you know, we can put a better handle in the spear so it flies better, whatever. Uh, and then you have this, and then that the new innovation, which, built on, which is built on top of the previous one, can accumulate and diffuse over the population, over the society. And that's how it works over time. You just slowly accumulate small improvements, which you create a process of ratcheting because the society is slowly improving the, 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 the bar at which they are in terms of technological development. So that, that's the idea broadly of, of cultural accumulation that this theory provides. Uh, however, that said, uh, this, this body of knowledge has, it's not that any type of social learning generates this process. Because what I was telling you is like a very basic, simple idea. But if you look, think, think very deeply and you do the math properly, you understand that there is a problem with social learning, uh, which is social learning is kind of a scrounger of information. If you have people copying, well, that diminishes the incentives of innovators to innovate. You know, that's a very old problem, which many scholars in innovation have tried to solve. For example, the, the, the the Nobel Prize in Economics was given to Paul Romer just exactly for trying to solve that problem of how do you incentivize innovation when you know that if the innovation is out and people can copy, well, it gets, it's not, it's not going to be incentivized. So that's the case with social learners. If you have many social learners, well, maybe something, you're going to have a bit of culture, things are going to diffuse within the organization within the within the society but the innovators are going to be uh, disincentivized so the share of innovators in a society is going to go down 
And in the end, you're going to have this paradox, which the mathematical models show is that you will have the fitness or the payoff, or if you will, the development of society that has social learners is going to be the same as in a society that doesn't have social learners. So to say that in a, in a kind of more uh, understandable terms is that the, 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 say the, the, produ the production or the well-being, well the, the welfare of a society that has or doesn't have culture in these models doesn't, doesn't, it's not different, it's not different. So then you have to think, well, what are the conditions of social learning that actually can generate this process of cumulative culture? And there's been a long literature in this field of evolutionary anthropology trying to understand what are these conditions. So one idea, for example, is that the, the different technologies that are useful in different settings or in different, yeah, in different environments, let's say, uh, can be correlated in the following sense. The best way to understand this is, this is an example. Imagine that you have a very good technology that, that, that is for a bow and arrow that is very well suited to hunt very large and slow prey, right? But imagine that something happens in the ecology, the environment changes, and all of a sudden you have very swift, small prey. Well, the bow and arrow now is not, is not ideal. But given that you have social learners that have been keeping and copying this, this tradition of bows and arrows, now the new innovators in this new ecology can start adapting the bow and arrow, not from scratch. They can start from a bow and arrow that is already some, has, it is somewhat functional, not ideal for this type of prey, but they can start already at some level that is, that is useful. So that's, that's one way that you can get out of this paradox that social learning somehow is not useful. Because we know the paradox comes from knowing that actually social learning and imitation is useful for, for society. That's kind of something, an intuition that we have. So does that then suggest certain implications for organizational innovation? And I'm thinking not just about the accumulation of knowledge, but also how that knowledge is utilized and how innovation actually happens within the confines of an organization? Yes, yeah, so we, we're gonna get into that. So I'm gonna uh, continue a bit with the, with the story that I was telling you be, be, beforehand, because I was telling you, well, not every type of social learning is useful for, for society. So uh, what, what these pro productive organizations do is that by being, they have, if, if, if the organizations are, have two characteristics, which are very, very precise. One is that they're exclusive. So you can, this organization have a boundary that is not permeable. So you have, they can accept or, uh, or quote unquote, fire people from the organization, but, but it's not like people can come in and out easily. So they are exclusive. And, if, and then on top of that, if this organization have a lower cost of social learning, then you can get out of this paradox. Then you can have uh, societies that can accumulate culture faster. Uh, and in a way, what these organizations are doing by being exclusive and having a lower exclusive and having a fixed boundary and having a lower social learning cost, they're doing intuitively two things. That they are uh, putting a halt, a halt in this process of expansion of social learners that is detrimental. Because in reality, we would like to imitate, to learn from, from others, because they have done, already done the hard work, and that's a natural incentive, just to copy solutions. 
but these organizations being exclusive and having a barrier, they stop that process. So innovation is incentivizing society. That's how, how one would like to think about it. And also, so these organizations can do incremental innovations within the boundaries. So that's another role that they can play in terms of, in terms of, this, of innovation. Okay, interesting. And, and in some ways, it sounds, and maybe I've misunderstood, almost as a, an argument against radical innovation and suggesting that incremental innovation is, is more, more natural or the way that things have typically developed over time. Uh, I don't, don't necessarily want to dwell on that for too long, but is that, is that correct? Yes, uh, the view that we, we, so what we find this, in this paper is that society, uh, these, these organizations are, these productive organizations, we, you want to think about, for example, guilds in the past. Guilds are the type of organizations that we have in mind, uh, which are very ancient institutions. They are good at incremental innovation. And that's the view of organizations that we uh, propose. And, and that doesn't mean that they don't innovate, but they innovate in a different kind, which is this incremental innovation. And, but they can also have some more radical innovations. So they can innovate around uh, creating products, services, or knowledge about nature, about something that we didn't know before. So invention, really. They can do that, but at, but at a smaller share than is being done out there in the market by individual people. And that's my view. My view, and with my co-author, we argue that in the paper, that if you look at the long run of, of our history, most of this radical innovation, really new stuff about nature or how the world works, has either started from inventors, which then might end up setting a firm, but start from, from people which are loners, inventors, also academics, and others, other areas which are not necessarily the big established firms. That doesn't mean that they don't do it, but their frequency is lower as compared to other type of, of, of agents in the, in the economy. You've talked uh, a bit about boundaries between organizations and, and the importance of boundaries. But often these days we see what might be called new organizational forms emerging, clusters and, and networked organizations. What are the implications of these developments for the sort of uh, theories and, and concepts that, that you and your colleague have discussed? Yeah, that's a very, that's a very good question. Because the theory that we've developed is a theory about knowledge that can be transmitted among individuals. Uh, and we know that, for example, if you're going to guilds in the past, you have the guilds of butchers, for example. And again, getting all the techniques and all the knowledge around butcher, being a butcher, you can, that's something that one person can hold in their head. And also many modern uh, professions is like that, I don't know, parts of medicine or, or being a lawyer, other services, you, you, Knowledge flows between individuals, uh, and that's kind of the right unit. But in other cases, so we have a lot of co-specialization. You have workers that have to come together to produce something that otherwise they would not be able to produce together uh, by, the, by themselves, sorry. And, and then you have something that is kind of at the level of the organization that is generated by many people, right? And And then... Our theory, particularly our theory, doesn't do a good job explaining those, but with my co-author, we're currently working on, on some extensions and trying to understand how these, these, these innovations or these trades, these technologies, these cultural elements that are at the group level, which require a lot of cooperation among many people to, 
to be to be generated, how those can evolve, right? So, and we, we are thinking about that. And the main explanation, the main idea is that in cultural evolution theory, there is this idea of group selection. And and we could go into details, but maybe maybe that's 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 too much for for, for because we don't have that much time. But there are many, many processes that generate heterogeneity in culture across groups. And you can think of the group as a as a firm, let's say, of a group of people that are trying to do something. And and those those processes generate groups which are different, and those differences are stable. And therefore, you can trigger a process of selection of group traits over the long run, right? And in my view, is that that is what propelled the rise of, let's say, in the middle 19th century, but also in the early 20th century in some societies in Europe, uh, the, the rise and the evolution of the modern corporation, because that's a very good vehicle to create and grow these traits that require cooperation among many individuals, rather than traits or, or information, if you will, that can be transmitted between individuals, uh, which are the guilds, and that's the theory that we develop. And going back, and this is a long, a long circle to, to get to ecosystem, but this type of ecosystems or network organization or clusters in modern day, let's say in the last 20 years, we see the rise of those. And, the last 10 years, we have a lot of discussion around ecosystems. What are these? Are these a new organizational unit? And my view, drawing from cultural revolution, is that they can well be. Because I see ecosystems or clusters as a set of organizations that come together to produce something that they cannot produce by themselves. Just like in a corporation or in a single, in a, in a regular firm, you have people coming together to produce something that they cannot produce by themselves. Ecosystems are one step up one level higher. But in this case, are firms coming together to produce something that they cannot produce otherwise. You could think of producing an airplane, for example. We could, you could think that that's an ecosystem. That's very complex. You require firms coming together in a stable way to try to produce something that has a lot of complexity. And, and cultural evolution has a good way of saying, yeah, this, these units can evolve. And if at some point you have competition among those units, you can trigger a process of evolution where some type of ecosystem will be selected because some of the characteristics that they have in place or, or the way that they relate to one another or some of the contracts or informal rules that they have developed are better for producing the output that they have to produce. Uh, and that process of selection over time can, can make ecosystems and clusters become a very real and significant unit in our economies. So what then would you suggest are the implications for, say, a practicing manager or a practicing organizational leader, chief executive, for example? What, what can they take from the theories that you and your colleague have, have developed? Ah, well, that's, that's, that's the, the question, right? Being in a business school, if you entertain this type of basic research, which is what I'm doing, you always wonder, because when you ask questions about why, why something is happening, and try to explain the origins of something, is that even at the central level, it's kind of a metaphysical question. You're trying to understand the ontology of a phenomena, something that is, and, and sometimes you just explain why they are, arise, why they occur, uh, and, and, and the managerial or practical implications are not that thick. Uh, 
But nonetheless, I think that we have things to say. We have some things to say. And I, and I have this firm belief that there is nothing more practical than a better theory. So if you understand better what firms are, then you will be in a better position to, to manage them, for example. So I guess that what, what I've learned and what I could tell managers about this is that firms are not well geared to, to promote radical innovation. And there is a lot of talk in, in, in modern uh, in business schools and in, the, in, in managerial circles, etc., that firms should try to disrupt and should try to, uh, I don't know, go for those radical innovations. And that's fine. But what we say is that the nature of firm goes against that. It's kind of, if you're going to do that, you can, but it's hard. It's hard work. And it's probably better, and this is an advice that is commonly, commonly given to, to firms, to managers. If you're going to try to do something like that, to innovate radically, you have to set up a new organization. Because the old one has a function, has a role, and, and it's better to keep it like that. Radical innovation is, is our theory would predict that it's always, almost always better to, to lodge it and to do it in a separate unit, and not within the, the, main, the main organization. So that's one, and that's one thing that it comes naturally from our theory, but that's not novel. So all the people have said that. I guess that we put theoretical underpinnings on that, which are very solid. That's kind of what we can say. The other, the other area is cooperation. And we haven't talked about too much about cooperation, but at the heart of our theory on the role of firms and, 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 and ancient guilds, etc., is that they have a better, they are more capable of doing social learning. So learning from one another within organizations is cheaper, it's easier. They do it at a better rate, more with more efficacy, more effectiveness. And and the role of cooperation in that is crucial. So, because social learning and, and learning from one another and sharing information is by, in essence, is a, cooper, is a cooperative act. So, cooperation is, is at the heart of firms. And, 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 if you, and if you want to set up a firm that is successful, uh, you have to think about that. It's, 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 it's hard to make a company that shares knowledge and tries to be effective. In, in accomplishing her, their task by not being cooperative, by not sharing the best practices, by not uh, trying to improve. My many, many managers sometimes have adopt this view that you have to make units, com units compete, or if you have, for example, you're running a retail, imagine that you're running a retail chain of bakeries or whatever, or restaurants. Maybe you wanna make competition among these units very hard, very strong. Well, in our, in our case would say, look, I think that the nature of firms at the heart is a cooperative entity. And you want to think about that before trying to, uh, I don't know, infuse too much competition and, and among the units within a single firm. That's something that, that, and also lately, and I think that this project holds more promise for informing managers. We are engaged with my co-author in a project trying to understand corporate culture, organizational culture. And what emerged using cultural evolution theory, and what emerged is a trade-off between innovation and cooperation, and we kind of know that uh, in our in our theories, in, in, in practitioners also, but we also put some solid theoretical underpinnings in in that. And I guess what is innovative in our case is that we say, look, innovation and cooperation 
are have a trade-off. You have a trade-off, uh, but both are good. You know, both are good. But so the question is, when would you like to push one or the other? So in this project that we're we're, we're doing, we find that you want to push more for innovation and sacrifice a little bit of cooperation when the environment is in flux, when the environment is changing a lot, uh, and you want to make cooperation the more important lever in your organization when the environment is stable. And, and that's because one another, which is what cooperation does, it's not going to be detrimental when you have a stable technology, when the industry is mature, when, when things are in flux, well, you have to keep innovating, trying to keep ahead of the pack. That also will explain why some the life cycle of firms, because you have startups, which at the start, let's imagine an industry which is starting, you have many startups trying to come up with a new technology, then firms have to be in innovation mode, they have to be there trying to innovate, etc. But after a while, when the technology has settled and there are some standards in the industry, well, then, then the companies have to shift. Now we have a stable environment, they have to shift towards a more cooperative uh, corporate culture. You mentioned uh, their different aspects of organizations and and their collaboration and cooperation, innovation. But I guess as we wrap up, what do you think the future holds for organizations? Should we expect to see the same organizational forms and structures in 100 years? Or do you think that it will be completely different? Ah, that's, that's a very interesting question. And yeah, I, I have things to say, and I would love to hear in 50 or 60 years from now, hopefully I'll still be alive, whether what I was thinking actually was <laughs> holding water. Uh, one thing to say is that evolutionary thinking is, is, a, is a theory that explains very well, but it's not good at predicting. There is this famous paper by a famous bi biologist, Ernst Meyer, he was from, from a Harvard biologist, and he, he made a case, and it was a very sound case, and that's kind of the canon in biology, that evolution can explain, but not predict. Uh, so take anything that I'm going to say now with some, with some grain of salt. Uh, I, my view is that organizations are going are gonna to evolve. And what I was telling in a minute ago uh, about the rise of new organizational forms in the last 300 years is a story about that is that you had in the past, you had guilds or partnerships which were suited for knowledge that could be held at the individual level. But then once you have innovations or ideas that require many people to come together, then you need another type of vehicle to create and lodge those traits that require many people to come together, those knowledge sets that have to come together to produce a good or a service. And think about now of a plane, you have many firms coming together, producing a plane, and that requires a new type of organizations. So I don't see why not in the next 100 years, just like we had a transition from guilds, partnerships to corporations. I don't see why not in the future, as economic complexity increases, that some organizations like ecosystems or clusters can arise and be part of the economic landscape in a way that is more formal, more established than the way they are now, because now ecosystems are Something that is there, many people theorize about that. I have a colleague in LBS, Michael Jacobidis, that is very adamant in saying this is a new type of organization that we have in the economy. I think that that can happen as the complexity increases and then you need more firms coming together to produce something. Well, 
the evolution, cultural evolution is going to select for new type of organizational form. That's something that that I, I think is going to happen. But I, I, it's very hard to predict which exactly is going to be the form. Uh, but I think that it's going to be related to firms coming together in a more structured way uh, to collaborate and compete against other firms that are coming together in a structured way. So you see competition among ecosystems, if you will, or geographical areas, for example, that are specialized in producing certain uh, products or services. Okay, interesting. Francisco Bram of London Business School, many thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. song electronic beat time and dream sequence by lorenzo's music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license